Good Friday is all about remembering the passion of Christ. For us, that word passion has come to mean something to do with intense love, perhaps romantic love, as in a passionate romance, or perhaps about an intense non-romantic love, such as a passionate interest in cooking. But it's more ancient meaning, the word passion, the more ancient meaning is intense suffering. Uh, the passion of Christ means the intense suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, his crucifixion. That's the interest of Good Friday. Uh, that is, that we understand the passion of Christ. How he suffered, that he suffered, why he suffered. We sometimes take it for granted that we know that he suffered, and we take it for granted that we know how he suffered. In recent years, there's been a focus on Jesus' physical suffering. Scientists and doctors and historians have worked out more and more about what it means to be crucified, medically speaking, and also how the Romans went about it in terms of flogging and beating, blood loss, the use of wine mixed with myrrh, the breaking of legs, etc., etc., all of this is largely blanked in the New Testament. Almost nothing said there about the extent of his injuries or the physical pain that he endured. And to some degree we've assumed and we've even taught others that this was because the original audience knew all about crucifixion. It was hard not to. So they didn't need to have the horrors of it spelt out for them. Crucifixion, simply put, is one of the most physically torturous methods of execution ever devised. And in reaction to seeing it not spelt out in the New Testament, we've felt the need to spell it out. Uh, one of the primary interests of Mel Gibson's film, named The Passion of Christ, is to detail for us the physical torture and pain that Jesus of Nazareth went through. And I myself in previous years, I've felt it necessary to explain in great detail what it meant for someone to be crucified in terms of what they'd have physically experienced. Having seen what's not there in the New Testament, we've been, at least in the contemporary Western world, a little blind as to what actually is there in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' death. And one reason, perhaps the principal reason, why the Romans thought that crucifixion was such a good way to execute people who resisted Roman rule, was not that it was the most painful way of dying imaginable, although it most certainly was painful, but rather they thought it was a good idea because it was the most shameful way of dying that they could imagine. To be nailed to a cross, uh, arms out wide, hands open, naked, unable to move, unable to defend yourself even from a crow or a raven, unable to do anything other than to, to swear and to curse. This was a picture of ridiculous powerlessness. It was a picture of weakness. And if a picture of weakness 
then a picture of what the Americans would call being a loser. The cross is humiliation in extremis. The crucified rebel was on display as a picture of weak, contemptible powerlessness. It was, therefore, the cross made it a spectacle. The cross made it a spectacle showing how stupid it would be to make an assault on Roman power. And indeed, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified, not because the Romans wanted to protect themselves against the pain of crucifixion, but rather because it would be degrading to all Roman citizens, for any one of them, to suffer this the greatest of humiliations. But even before we get to the crucifixion, in our Gospel accounts, our Gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're already detailing for us not the physical pain that Jesus endured, but the shames and humiliations he endured along the way. Betrayed by his friends, abandoned by his disciples, disowned by his second-in-command publicly mocked for his claim to be saviour, messiah, king and God, publicly mocked in the Sanhedrin court, once condemned, crucified with criminals left and right, then openly ridiculed and insulted as he hung on the cross, insulted and ridiculed by the soldiers, by the criminals, by the crowd and by the Jewish leadership. What Mark wants us to see in his account is that Jesus was shamed and dishonoured in every possible way. Then the ultimate dishonour in chapter 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Um, something that I hadn't seen until very recently. I hadn't seen it at all, but um, the, the teacher who showed me this was uh, Wes uh, Redgen of the uh, Queensland Theological College. He was speaking at uh, February's um, uh, CMS uh, Summer Focus Conference, and he was speaking on understanding unashamed cultures. And he showed me something that I'd never noticed. The thing that I hadn't understood or seen was that darkness is a motif in the Old Testament for divine disapproval. To be cast into darkness by God is to be thrown into confusion and powerlessness. Now, I'd always understood that darkness came over the whole land uh, in Mark 15.33. I'd always understood that, to be sure, as some uh, symbol of divine disapproval, but I'd equally understood that God was signalling his disapproval of the crucifixion. A hint, along with the temple curtain being ripped in two, a hint that humanity was making a colossal mistake in crucifying his son. And that would almost certainly be the correct interpretation if Jesus was surrounded by darkness, 
but that he himself was illuminated by a shaft of brilliant light, then we'd understand disapproval of the crucifixion, approval of the Son. But that's not what happened. No, Jesus himself is in the darkness. Jesus is being shamed, dishonoured, disowned and humiliated by God. And after three hours, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark and Matthew's gospel, this is the only thing that Jesus says on the cross. Otherwise, he is silent. And we can take these words at face value. God has abandoned Jesus. And Jesus does not know why. God has abandoned Jesus. This was the true agony that Jesus suffered on the cross. The physical agony was appalling, I'm sure, but that is not the focus of the Gospels. And the Gospels certainly aren't telling us, as some assume, that Jesus suffered more physically than anyone else before or since. No, rather the agony of the Son on the cross is that he is separated, the Eternal Son is separated from the Eternal Father for the very first time ever. And this is, biblically speaking, the true meaning of death. Death means to be separated from God, who is the God of the living, not of the dead. So then, for an example, Adam in the garden, he was told not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day of your eating it, you will surely die. Now, in fact... Adam and Eve did not die physically on the day of their eating of it, and they didn't die physically, indeed, for many, many years to come. But they did depart on the day of eating it. They did depart from the presence of the Lord on that very day. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the threat of death is the threat of being cut off eternally from the love and joy and beauty and vitality of the presence of the living God. Um, in the Gospels, Jesus routinely referred to living people who were disconnected from God as dead. And he referred to dead people who were in relationship with God as sleeping. Real death is separation from God. Well, Jesus now suffers that agony, the agony not of sleeping, but the agony of being dead, that is to say, separated from God. Um, I guess it's easy to say, here now on the cross, the Father abandons his eternally begotten Son. It is easy to say, but it is difficult for us. Actually, I think it may be impossible for us yet to fully realize what that means. But perhaps we consider it a little bit like this. God is love, perfectly loving, and the source of all love. 
Eternally, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit shared a relationship of perfect love and perfect intimacy, perfect and holy and absolute pleasure and satisfaction in their relating to one another. Anything good, everything good that we've ever experienced in any of our loving relationships, perhaps with our spouse, perhaps with our children, perhaps with our parents, perhaps with our pets, perhaps with our friends, anything that we've experienced that makes us think that love is a good and wonderful thing, well, that's just a pale reflection of the beauty and intensity of the perfect love of these eternal relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, I, I guess I've known uh, one or two moments uh, in my life, a few moments perhaps uh, in my life, of intense, unbearable grief and pain at a sudden loss. Perhaps you can consider for a moment the most intense moment of grief you have ever experienced. Well, that experience is perhaps something that at a very much scaled down and washed out level might help you to understand what, at that precise moment in history, the Father and the Son were each experiencing as their relationship was broken and they were without each other. God abandoned his Son. And Jesus did not know why. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? These are also hard words to understand, particularly as Jesus in Mark's Gospel, he spent much of his time, he spent much of his time in the last eight chapters teaching his disciples what would happen, that he'd be handed over to the Gentiles, mocked and spat upon, suffer many things, rejected by the elders, killed, and after three days rise again. He spent a lot of time telling his disciples, teaching his disciples what would happen and telling them why it would happen in order to give his life as a ransom for many, in order to pay the price on our behalf. Jesus has walked into this crucifixion moment literally eyes wide open. But now he says, why? As though he has no idea as to why this is happening. He doesn't understand. And I found this very difficult to understand. Myself, in past years, I've spoken on these very words, saying that Jesus actually did know why, but rather he's using the words of the psalm to articulate his feelings, to pray his heart, how he felt abandoned by God. But that cannot be entirely right. If Jesus asks why, we must take his words at face value. And we are right to do so because this prayer begins with, My God, my God. And this is the only time Jesus ever prayed that way. Otherwise, Jesus' prayers always begin with, Father, or Abba, Father, or Righteous Father, or something similar. To, to address God as God, well, that's something that we human beings do when we're not really sure who it is that we're talking to, when we don't really know or understand his name. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Jesus doesn't call God, God anywhere else, just here. Jesus has lost the sense of the fatherhood of God. God has become to Jesus simply God. And in that we can see that that's happened, we know that Jesus has entered fully, he has entered fully into the experience of sinful man. Not that he has ever sinned, but rather he knows what it's like to be a man caught in sin, a man not knowing who he's talking to when he's praying, when he's speaking to God, a man who's not understanding what's happening to him, not understanding uh, it's opaque to him. He doesn't understand what God is doing. He's not experiencing what he used to experience. He's not experiencing the utter, unconditional and continual acceptance, presence and approval, all of those things that are rightfully fully his as a son of God. All of that's lost. And he feels abandoned by God. What have I done to deserve this? Is God punishing me? Why, O oh God, is this happening? The fact that the perfect words for Jesus of Nazareth to say, whilst being on the cross, the fact that these perfect words, being abandoned by God, being shamed by God, being humiliated by God, that the fact that these words just so happen to be in the Bible, Psalm 22, verse 1, that should alert us to the cosmic, eternal significance of what's happening. Jesus is saying something that the Holy Spirit gave David to say. Jesus is praying something that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, prayed 1,000 years before him. My God my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my extreme distress. My God, I scream to you all day, but there's no answer. And at night, but I still can't find any of this peace that people talk about. When we've known God, when we've been saved by him before, when we've seen his power at work in our lives and in the lives of others, when we've felt his love for us and the pleasure that we have in his presence, then, then sometimes when we suffer, when we're surrounded by enemies without number, problems without solutions, challenges innumerable and insurmountable, there just seems to be something so cosmically wrong it's unbearable. On that day, we might find ourselves thinking, we might find ourselves praying, what have I done to deserve this? Is God punishing me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Where have you gone? Yet David also prayed this, however you are king, you are holy, you are the one, Israel worships. In you, our forefathers put their trust, and you always save them. And a little later, 
You brought me out of the womb. You enabled me to trust in you, even as a babe in arms. From birth, I've been yours. From in utero, I've put my trust in you. Even in the experience of extreme suffering, in the utter confusion of mind it brought about, David put his trust in God, even when he had no idea what was going on. And we know that Jesus did also. Two conclusions. Firstly, Jesus shows us what it means to be human. That Jesus experienced something that David experienced and that is recorded in the Bible, Psalm 22. Words recorded beforehand for us to pray. Words given by the Holy Spirit to David, for David to use back to God. Words recorded for us because we're going to need them. We're going to have to use them. What does that teach us? Well, it it teaches us that Jesus shows us something incredibly important about what it means to be human, that actually the cross is a necessary and unavoidable part of what it means to be a human being. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, together with Psalm 22, they show us the path that God has marked out for us, for us too. And what do we do on that day? What do we do on that day when we have no idea what God is doing and we feel abandoned, we feel humiliated, shamed by God, punished, and we do not know why? And we cry out, God, God, why have you forsaken me? What do we do? Well, we, we put our trust in God, even at that darkest moment of least comprehension, of no feeling of connectedness or intimacy. We still, we still trust God. And we put our trust in God in the hope of a resurrection, in the hope of a redemption, knowing in our heads maybe that this is a sure hope, but a sure hope, but, but even so, even it doesn't, when it doesn't feel like a sure hope, still we trust God. Jesus shows us how to be human. Secondly, Jesus shows us what God is like, what it means to be God. Jesus shows us that God was prepared to enter into the fullness of human experience, even into the human experience of not knowing or comprehending God. Because of his love for us, the father shamed, humiliated, and disowned his son. The shame, humiliation, and dishonor that ought to have been ours. Because of his love for us, the son submitted to all of this. The physical and psychological torture, the grief, and the pain. And together, they did it all for love for love of each other and for love of us. Their love for us. The cross was necessary to God really knowing what it is like to be us and really necessary that we might really know what he is like. For God wants us to understand that we can know what he is like perfectly when we look at Jesus, and even most perfectly of all, when we look at Jesus on the cross. The cross shows us what it means to be human, 
And the cross shows us who God is. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.